here last November and uh, had a wonderful time and it's wonderful to be able to be back. I had the privilege of uh, conducting a two-day pastor seminar in central Pennsylvania, a state in America, and we had a wonderful time together, probably about 50 men there, and we talked about a lot of issues today about doing ministry. And one of the pastors who had not been long in the church where he was came to me afterwards and said, would you come and help me? I need help at my church, and I agreed to go help him and started going there once a year for a period of time. And I found out that it was a church that had had a great history. They had a pastor that led them in their city to go from a meager, small congregation to 1,200 people on Sundays. And they built a new campus. They had an auditorium that would seat 1,500 people. And they had 70 classrooms, a full-size gymnasium, and grounds around the buildings. And it was a wonderful thing. But inside of that congregation was a leaven of legalism. And that means people who have ideas about rules and regulations that God doesn't really support. Uh, They are more separated than God is. And they began to sow away inside of that congregation, and it started to decline and go down. And the pastor left, and he went someplace else and replicated exactly what he had done in the previous place, build a dynamic church for the glory of God. Anyway, he asked me if I would come. So the first Sunday I was there, first weekend I was there, If you can imagine this, we were in an auditorium that seats 1,500 people, a little bit bigger than this, and uh, we had 90 people there that morning, and it was sort of like, I think there's somebody out there, but I'm not sure, there's maybe a couple of people over there hiding out, and a couple more over there, and uh, that's how far down they had come, from 1,200 to 90. Let me show you why that happened. They began to grow. God began to use that pastor to change things and turn things around. And they began to go up. And they got up to 350 people again. And they called a part-time youth pastor. And he began to be really burdened for the teens of the city. And there was one aspect of the teen world that he was especially burdened about. You do realize that there are more than one culture in the teen world. You got the athletes, and you got the academics, and you got the techies. He was burdened for the group that's called the skateboarders. And in that city, the skateboarders looked like this. They had half their head shaved, the rest of it spiked in different colors, and they had body piercings in every conceivable place. They had chains that would hang down. They wore their crotches or their knees down, crotch down to their knees, and uh, they were a, that kind of a group. And he was burdened for them. He managed to get in with them, not doing their sin, but he connected with them, got into their lives, and then he built some ramps at the church. They didn't have a place to skate that was good. And he built some ramps at the church so they could skate on Friday nights 
And he had this stipulation, you can come, but you're going to give me 20 minutes so that I can talk to you about my best friend, Jesus. If you talk when I'm talking, you don't come back. They listened to him. And he soon had 100 of those skateboarders on the church campus every Friday night. He was in prayer meeting one night, and the youth pastor told me this from his own mouth. And he listened to the people pray, and they were burdened, supposedly, about the city. They prayed prayers that were very pious about reaching their city for Christ. But right after that prayer meeting, one of the legalists got a hold of his elbow and said, Youth pastor, the kind of people you got around here on Friday nights... They don't belong in this church. Get that trash out of here. I think Jesus whooped. I want you to catch the heart of Christ this morning. I want you to listen to him. And I want you to see his life. He gives us one of the most dynamic chapters that I know of in the Bible. There are some great chapters in the Bible. This is one of them. And if you will turn there to Luke 15, I'll be there in just a minute. I can't seem to advance my slides here. There we go. Luke 19 tells us why Christ came to this world. He said, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to seek and save the lost. That's what that youth pastor was doing. If I can probably put it into a graphic for you. There we go. Upper left-hand corner. You have God's world. It is from eternity to eternity. God's world is a place, as I mentioned here, of supreme holiness and significance and glory. It has a culture. God's world has a culture. When God got ready to reach the lost, he came about with a plan. And that plan didn't express that he was going to stay in heaven and that he was going to just invite us to come there from that vantage point. What did happen? Jesus took upon him the form of a body, left heaven, came to this world, and lived in the lives of unsaved, lost people. Skateboarders. He was reaching into their lives. He became embedded among the unsaved. And he was up close in their lives. He was demonstrating what God is really like. And he did that in order that he could communicate the glorious gospel to them and be able to take them back to glory. It is on. 
I'll try it once more. Thanks, guys. What did that mean for Jesus? Jesus was willing, because of his strong love and passion that compelled him to reach into the lives of the unsaved, he became embedded among them in order that he could reach them. He was not separated. He was not isolated. He had not pulled back from the unsaved as far as he could get. He was in their lives. He didn't do their sin. And I hope that you understand he was willing to make some pretty significant changes in his life in order to be able to come here. He did not violate Scripture. But when Jesus came out of heaven and came into this world, as Philippians teaches us, it was a different atmosphere. It was a different culture. It was a different language. It was different food. It was different dress. It was different music. It was different activities. He was willing to do all of those changes that did not violate Scripture in order that he could reach lost people. And I think the plaguing question facing our churches today is, are you willing to do whatever it will take to reach lost people short of violating Scripture? He does not expect us to violate Scripture. But will you do whatever it takes? Would you be willing to change your culture? Would you, with the culture of this church, would you be willing to change your language? Would you be willing to change your food or your dress or your music or activities that you can reach lost people? Are you that driven? Does passion grip you and cause you to want to be able to do whatever it takes to reach them? This chapter that we're going to be involved in is just a dynamite chapter. Christ is speaking. <clears throat> and Christ is going to put together a picture. I'll tell you, he puts together a message here that is awesome. And I want you to look at chapter 15 like you never have before, maybe. I want you to stand back. And I want you not to look at the little parts of chapter 15, which you know pretty well, but I want you to look at chapter 15 as a big picture. What is, what is he doing here? So if you're looking at verse 1 of chapter uh, Luke, uh, look what it says. I want you to see who he's talking to. Then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. That's pretty strong stuff. They weren't happy about that. But let's think, who's there? Who's listening to Christ? Well, there are three groups of people listening in the crowd. Number one, you have the tax gatherers. The tax gatherers were looked upon by the Jewish people as the worst sinners among them, tax gatherers. Israel, the nation of God with a proud history, is now under the oppressive regime of Rome, pagan Rome. And they're reduced to serf status. And being part of the Roman Empire, the Jews had to pay the exorbitant taxes of Rome. The tax collectors were Jewish men 
who had sold themselves out to the oppressive enemy, Rome, and worked for the Roman regime. After collecting those exorbitant taxes, they could then assess other fees and other uh, ways of taking money from their Jewish people, and they became very rich at the expense of their Jewish people. If you stop to think about the greed and graft, etc., that was being expressed, where would you have to go in a culture today to find somebody comparable? Well, in the U.S., we probably would think of the mafia. The mafia is a group of people that are just like that. And that's who they looked upon as the worst of sinners. Secondly, there are the sinners there. They were named next. And the Jews of that day thought of the sinners as the second worst classification of sinful people. These sinners were individuals that lived their lives flaunting God. His person, his scriptures, they flaunted it. They were wanton rebels in their lifestyles. They fulfilled their lust with abandon. They were the sludge and moral cancer in the neighborhood. That's who Jesus is with. Kind of like skateboarders. He's with them. A third group that you're going to find there are Pharisees and scribes. And the Pharisees and the scribes were religious. And they didn't like what Jesus was doing or how he was going about to reach lost people. They didn't like and didn't think he ought to be associating with the people that he was associating with. And in Matthew 19, they referred to Christ as the friend of sinners. Would people look upon you as a friend of sinners? That youth pastor became a friend of sinners. He got into their lives. You can't become a friend if you don't get into somebody's life. And that's going to be very clear in Christ's life. The thing they didn't like about him is that they struggled big time that Jesus, who claimed to be God, is hanging out with people like this. Do you hang out with people like Jesus did? Or have you become a subculture basically only connecting with other Christians? In your Christian radio? In your Christian magazines? Or have you connected like Christ did? You're going to be talking this month about the poor. And you're going to be talking about the powerless. And you've got a missionary speaker coming who's going to talk to you about that. Connecting with those kinds of people. They don't know the Lord. And if you don't ever connect with them, you cannot ever reach them. Listen to me. It's possible to be more separated than God is. He doesn't want you there. In Luke 15, there are three stories, and you know them well. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And each of these stories has a particular assignment to it. 
The shepherd who was lost, had a lost lamb. The shepherd in that story represents God. And the sheep represent the tax collectors and sinners. And then you have the widow with her lost coin. And the widow represents God. And the coin represents the tax collectors and sinners. Now, Jesus is making up these stories. He is telling this story. And he's telling it's powerful in all of its meaning. Third, the father and the lost son. The father represents God, and the prodigal son represents the tax collectors and the sinners. But then, in the last story, you've got this elder brother that Jesus put in there. The elder brother represents the Pharisees and the scribes. This holier-than-thou, super-separated, grumpy, complaining, self-centered, irritated, frustrated, and angry elder brother represents the Pharisees. He's just, he's just like them. So we got six very important lessons we got to learn out of this passage. There are six life principles that Christ wants us to learn. And there are, there are actually practices in our life. There are principles we learn and then we live them out in practice and we are going to use them in the sharing of God's good news of eternal salvation. So quickly, I'm going to run through these six and five minutes. Does that mean I'll have less than one minute for each one, okay? You got your seatbelt fastened? Here we go. Hang on. We're going to cover them. When God thinks of lost people, he thinks of lost people in terms of having suffered a very significant loss himself. Think about it. When you and I talk about lost people, we tend to be very superficial about it. Kind of casually, kind of flippantly, we talk about lost people. It doesn't really move us too much. When God thinks about lost people, you have to go back with him in the Genesis Chapter 1 and 2, when he created all that he created, and he created the seas and everything, the earth, he created the interplanetary space, he created the birds and the animals and the plant life, but then he created humans. And when he created humans, he put within them his image. He didn't put his image in anything else. What constitutes his image? People sometimes ask me that, and maybe the best way that I can... I don't have it there, do I? Let me read it to you. To be made in the image of God means at least this much. We are in God's image with an eternal spirit. We are in God's image capable of thinking abstractly. We are in God's image possessed of the aesthetic, beauty, emotion. We are in God's image <clears throat> with moral consciousness. And we are in God's image with spiritual attributes. None of the rest of his creation has that. One day, <clears throat> the adversary, Satan, 
came into the lives of Adam and Eve. And when he left, that image was significantly marred. They sinned. What a loss. Prior to that time, God walked with Adam and Eve. He fellowshiped with them. And they were in a relationship that was awesome. Lost. God has been all through the Old Testament and the New Testament about the business of restoring, reclaiming the lost. And you're going to find that ultimately all of His people will have a, they become new creations in Christ Jesus. And this world is going to be a new world, a new heavens and a new earth. He's finally going to put it back to where it all was before it got marred, before he lost such a significant loss. So when you think about lost people, go deeper. Think of it as God does. Get that kind of people out of here. That trash. They had no concept of what loss means. They will never be soul winners. They will never reach lost people unless they begin to think like God. Secondly, these who have been lost from God are hopelessly and helplessly lost unless there is some kind of intervention in their behalf. Think about it. A sheep that gets lost cannot find its way home. A coin, an inanimate object that is lost, has no way of finding itself. A son who was lost in those days, the father had nothing to do with him anymore. He was lost. God Senses, that helplessness, that hopelessness. Jesus came out of heaven and came into this world because he knew, knew that there needed to be intervention. And you and I have to grasp that and bring that into ourselves in a close way. Keep going with me and see the next one. Every one of these stories, God was the seeker. He was the one who was intervening. And you know that the shepherd left the ninety and nine and went out to find the lost. The woman stopped everything and turned the house upside down to find the coin. The father stood looking, hoping his son would come home, his heart seeking and ready to receive his son with a warm embrace. Become a seeker, not a critic. Get that trash. Out of here. A seeker. The next thing I want you to see in here is, do you notice how many times joy and rejoicing come up in these stories? I think this is fascinating. The shepherd finds the sheep, and he has joy. And not only does he have joy, but he comes home and throws a party. And invites all of his friends, and they rejoice with him. 
The woman called her friends together after she found the coin, and she rejoices, and they rejoice. And the father, when his son was found, threw such a big party that the elder brother that was out in the field a ways away, there was a band playing, there was dancing, there was loud voices. You read the text. Rejoicing. I'm in churches where there's practically no rejoicing. Nothing celebratory happening. And that's sad. And when I asked the pastor, when's the last time somebody got saved around here? He has to tell me. It's been a long time. Those who lead others to Christ are rejoicers. I'll tell you, some of the highest moments in my life have been when somebody prayed to receive Jesus, and I was there when it happened. I'll tell you, I used to drive home sometimes after those experiences, so high, so rejoicing because of what God was doing in their lives. Keep going with me. Jesus showed something of worth and value in each one of these stories to represent the tax collectors and sinners. Think that one through. Wealth in that day was counted in the number of sheep you had. Wealth in that day for a widow who could not work was in her meager coin. Wealth in that day was a son to a father. And Jesus is saying, God the Father looks upon individuals, even tax collectors and sinners, skateboarders, as having worth and value. Carry it over into our day. What about homosexuals? Pedophiles? Murderers? And I could keep going. In God's eyes, there is worth and value in their soul. Not in their deeds, but in their soul. And you and I, friends, a church will never become a great soul-winning church. We'll never become a church that is reaching the lost and is not going to be a church that's out there and bringing others to Christ unless these six things become very prominent in the, in the congregation. You've got to work on these and bring them in to be part of your life. And the final one that I mentioned here for you, in these stories, Jesus challenges the Pharisees to repent of their prejudice and lack of mercy. It is their prejudice and lack of mercy that has kept them at the fringe of the crowd, grumbling and murmuring about bad folk of their day. Do you have any prejudice in you? I think sometimes we have more prejudice than we realize. Why do I think that? Because when I'm in churches and I look over the congregation, I think the only people they really reach are people that are just like them. 
That congregation should be a reflection of their community. Ethnically, financially, educationally, in every way. If you're really without prejudice and people can be accepted. See, prejudice is a barrier. Prejudice puts a barrier between you and people that you should be trying to reach. And the Pharisees looked upon shepherds as the lowest of the caste system. I think it's interesting that God, when he announced his son, who did he announce his son to first? The shepherds. The woman. Pharisees in that day had no time for women. The father, fathers in that day who had a prodigal son had nothing further to do with them. Jesus is nailing the issue of prejudice. And prejudice is prevalent, I think, far more than we would care to admit. For example, I know of a country church in New York State that uh, there was a group of motorcycle guys, <clears throat> hardcore bikers who lived in the area. They had 50 of them in their club. They're the kind of guys, you know, that you see going down the road and they kind of hang off both sides and they got their leather stuff all on and they got their long hair and all the rest. They're kind of tough-looking dudes. And the head of that motorcycle gang got saved. So he said to the rest of the club, he said, next Sunday, Sunday morning, be at such and such a little country church out there. Can you imagine sitting in the congregation and 50 of those bikes come rolling in and these dudes come walking into the church? <clears throat> what do you think the people thought? <clears throat> Prejudice? Get that trash out of here? A pastor transformed himself into a homeless person. And he went to the church that he was to be introduced as the head pastor that morning. He walked around his soon-to-be church for 30 minutes while it was filling with people for service. Only three people said hello to him. Most looked the other way. He asked people for change to buy food because he was hungry. Not one gave him anything. He went into the sanctuary to sit down in the front of the church. I was told by the ushers that he would need to get up and go sit in the back of the church. He said hello to people as they walked in, but was greeted with cold stares and dirty looks from people looking down on him and judging him. He sat in the back of the church and listened to the church announcements for the week. He listened as new visitors were welcomed into the church that morning, 
but no one acknowledged that he was new. He watched people around him continue to look his way with stares that said, you're not welcome here. When the elders of the church went to the podium to make the announcement, they said they were excited to introduce the new pastor of the church of the congregation. We would like to introduce you to our new pastor. The congregation stood up and looked around, clapping with joy and anticipation. The homeless man, sitting in the back, stood up and started walking down the aisle. That's when all the clapping stopped and the church was silent. With all eyes on him, he walked up the altar, reached for the microphone. He stood there for a moment and then recited so eloquently a verse from the Bible. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of my brothers and sisters, you did for me. After he recited this, he introduced himself as their new pastor and told the congregation what he had experienced that morning. Many began to cry and bow their heads in shame. Today, he said, I see a gathering of people here, but I do not see a church of Jesus. The world has enough people that look the other way. What the world needs is disciples of Jesus that can follow these teachings and live as he did. When will you decide to become a disciple? He then dismissed the service until the following Sunday. Friends, are you living like a Pharisee or like Jesus? Father, I pray that you would grip our hearts, that you would help us to become more like Jesus. Amen. Lots to think about there, amen? As we...